welcome. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Write Medicine, a bi-weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. I'm a former nurse and an academic who's now a writer and researcher creating and evaluating education content for health professionals. I also teach medical writers how to enrich their continuing medical education writing niche. If your work involves planning, designing, delivering, or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. This episode of Write Medicine is brought to you by Write CME Pro, a membership-driven community that provides skills and scaffolding for medical writers who want to create CME content with confidence. Write CME Pro includes access to expert perspectives to help you build your CME writing skills a portfolio accelerator to hold space so that you can create stunning samples to show your prospects, group coaching to help you build foundational and expert knowledge in CME, and monthly office hours so that you can ask questions and get answers from your peers. Write CME Pro is a community for people like you who are ready to grow their CME writing niche. Doors open in January 2023. Quality improvement is intrinsically linked to the CME planning process and physician peer review is one of the tools used to promote the highest standard of care possible. Today I'm joined by Heather Clemens, a senior specialist in quality at Sharp Grossman Hospital, California. She's a physician peer review specialist with a background in CME. Heather explains, the reason I'm in quality is the person who hired me saw that quality is the other side of the CME coin. We discuss how diversity, equality and equity emerged as goals for Sharp Healthcare and how the combination of the employee grassroots movement and Californian legislation allowed Sharp to employ a unique CME and quality improvement process. We talked about how regular discussions in a variety of formats can create a safe learning space, the importance of a triannual community needs assessment that Sharp Grossman uses. And we talked about how to proactively address community and clinician education needs through CME. Welcome, Heather. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you today, Alex. I'm looking forward to it as well. Heather is a physician peer review specialist in the work that she does. So we're going to talk a little bit about that as well as some other things. Can you tell us, first of all, Heather, a little bit about who you are and the work that you do. Yeah, I think part of the reason you said I do peer review for physicians and I'm in quality right now, some people are probably wondering, what does that have to do with CME? The truth of the matter is that I've spent nearly the last eight years working in the continuing medical education department at Sharp Healthcare prior to just taking this role a few months ago. I was the lead CME associate there um, And we had a pretty comprehensive CME program where actually we were one of the bigger programs that was accredited by the ACCME. We're in that first, that first tier that they charge you more money because you do more stuff kind of organizations, even though size wise, we're maybe not as big as like Intermountain or Mayo or some of the larger healthcare systems Mm. that people may be familiar with. Sharp Healthcare on the whole is an integrated healthcare system here in San Diego. It includes Grossmont Hospital as well as three other acute care hospitals. We also have a behavioral health hospital and a substance use hospital as well. And we have another specialty hospital that is um, mothers and a newborn. So 
We have a women's health hospital as well. We also have two medical groups and insurance plans. So we pretty much cover all the bases. It's actually the largest private employer in San Diego. And I say private employer because the biggest employer in San Diego is, is the military. For those that don't know, it is quite a military town. And we're actually the largest healthcare system by market share as compared to UCSD, University of California, San Diego Health, as well as Scripps Health. We do have some quote unquote competitors in the community, but we have quite a large footprint ourselves, even though if you're not from the Southern California area, you may or may not be familiar with our organization. The last year I was in CME, we did about... 325 activities, everything from conferences to regularly scheduled series to having online content. We've also taken on offering more maintenance of certification part two, especially ABIM. And we are a member of the multi-specialty portfolio program for MOC part four. The size of the team at that point was six people. So there was a lot of us running around now from our homes, not necessarily in our offices. COVID made us a remote and we decided to stay that way. So we do a lot, mostly focusing on internal things related to things going on in the various hospitals and what our clinicians need. We do a couple of community conferences, but some of that has been limited, obviously, by COVID, and I anticipate some of it will come back. But we are really an internally focused organization and working to improve physician practice and keeping up to date with what's new and hot and those sorts of things. That's a pretty Um, extensive footprint that you're describing. Can you talk a little bit about how you landed in the CME in the first place? I think I have a similar story to a lot of other people that get into CME. It was an accident, (laughs) (laughs) right? You can't go to college and get a degree in how to do continuing medical education. I think that day is maybe coming. At least health professions, professional development, education at some time. I, I see things out there where people are thinking about it. You're seeing it mentioned in the research, but I... Originally, I'm an athletic trainer by trade. So for those of you that don't know what that is, I'm not a personal trainer and I'm not a physical education teacher or a gym teacher for all the PE teachers out there who just cringed. Actually, (laughs) if you watch football and other sports, we joke that I'm the person with the khakis and the tape hanging off my belt that runs out onto the field when someone gets hurt. That has a wide complement of skills in, in evaluation and rehabilitation in the area of sports medicine and some general medical background, obviously thinking about things like concussions and a sudden cardiac arrest and heat illness and a lot of the things that you hear about when it comes to sports participation. I've actually been certified well over 20 years now, which, gosh, makes me feel old <laughs> to, be able to say that out loud. I worked clinically for a number of years, and then I had the privilege to get engaged in the educational side with an undergraduate academic curriculum back on Long Island in New York. And that's how I got the teaching bug. And then um, didn't want to get eaten alive by New York City and wanted to move somewhere where it was a little bit slower, but you had a lot of options. And San Diego ended up being the place. And I got fortunate to find the position at Sharp as a combination of my ability to deal with accreditation and teaching and having had previous relationships with physicians, particularly orthopedists who um, probably are some of the more challenging physicians to have a relationship with. So I had a good crash course and had to get things done and make things happen. So that that's how I came to CME kind of a roundabout way like everyone else. And as you mentioned, I've now parlayed that into transitioning into the quality department at one of the hospitals and focusing on physician peer review, where they take a look at certain cases that um, either meet peer indicator requirements that the committee has determined that if this happens, we want to look into it to make sure that we still provided the best care possible, 
or all those publicly reported measures. If a case falls out, it's a mortality or somebody gets readmitted within less than 30 days or some of these themes that are familiar to us in CME, right? But we're not on the front lines. So I'm a little bit closer to the front lines now, although I'm not doing direct patient care, definitely closer to that that aspect of it and seeing things in real time. I think there's an interesting conversation to have there about orthopedists. <laughs> you mentioned their their particular culture. And I was a trauma OR nurse, so I'm familiar <laughs> with <laughs> that particular culture. But I did want to ask about the kind of interface between quality and CME. I mean, you described Sharp as an internally facing organization in terms of the work that you do. So what's the relationship between quality and CME? So I would say that we probably have, reflecting on my time in CME, I would say that relationship with quality was quite strong. And, and there were organizations when we would go to conferences and things, we would be somewhat envious of the relationship that we had. It wasn't perfect. I think there was still a lot of potential for us being able to collaborate and do more things together. But what I can say is that um, one of the unique things is that because we were under a system department that had also included research and Lean Six Sigma and quality, it was a little bit easier to establish those relationships at the highest levels and then try to figure out how to make it trickle down. For example, we actually had a member of the team who got his Lean Six Sigma green belt, and his project was to figure out how to identify performance improvement projects that Lean Six Sigma was doing that would qualify for PICME. And one of the biggest things that we found was that it's it's mostly that the green belts and the black belts and the other people working on projects were just so involved in the project and making it happen that they didn't necessarily take a step back and look at it and go, hey, there are physicians involved in my project. This is what it takes for it to meet criteria to be a, C- a PICME project. Let me get in touch with CME and see what we can do. Because the physicians are already doing the work. They're already making the improvements. So if we can throw 20 to 30 CME credits at them for something they're already doing, it's beneficial for both departments, right? We get an opportunity to provide a different type of CME activity. We're improving physician engagement. We're improving their experience. And Lean Six Sigma gets to say, hey, they get bonus points too, because then maybe more physicians want to participate in more projects because they know they can double dip, right? They can make an improvement collaborating with one department, but another department can actually quote unquote reward them with something that they need over the long term. And we it the with the project i think we jumped from doing three projects to doing like 12 projects in the 6 months that he was doing and it's tailed off now with um you know covid kind of messed with a lot of things and i think they're working to try to get it to back up to higher levels again because that's needed or a reawareness campaign that's needed so that was one of the really cool things that we were able to do Clinical analytics is also at the system level. So if we could figure out the right questions to ask, or we had a committee who was really open to it, sometimes we had the opportunity to really connect it directly to metrics because we had data that we're already collecting. Or in one of the hospitals that I was working with, it was with Grossmont, actually. I used to have regular meetings with the director of quality. Like every other week, we would sit down and I would say, hey, what's coming up in your supervisory meetings? What's coming up? Like, where are the trends? What are the things that we can do. And then we would talk about maybe I can get it. They had a weekly grand rounds that I was responsible for. So sometimes it was as simple as, hey, let's try to get a speaker on ERAS or let's try to get a speaker on 
AMI mortality or clinical documentation or something because I knew what the hot button issues were for them because we had met regularly. And I think that's something that we wanted to start working on with the other quality directors, but then COVID hit and it hasn't extended. But I think it's in some many ways, it's been easier for us than some of the stories I've heard from other providers about just being in two separate lands and not being of the same mind. The reason I'm in quality is because the person who hired me saw that quality is the other side of the coin of CME. And aside from some of the transferable skills, I think he made the connection between this will also give me a resource that when we really do need to do education, I have somebody who knows how to put it together and has been on that side of it and can help us make those connections. So really all intertwined. And it's just a matter of how you access it. And we've been pretty fortunate here at Sharp to have some channels to do it and people who are open to the process and the conversation. But those all seem like really fundamental things that a lot of organizations don't necessarily seem to have in place. One of the things that's always puzzled me is, obviously, you're talking about quality patient safety units in organizations. That's a, that's a kind of obvious connection with CME as well. And yet sometimes it seems as though those two departments don't really talk to each other on a consistent basis. And I would say that Sharp is by far not perfect. The fortunate thing with me being in quality now is that includes performance improvement. It also includes the patient safety component and having a patient safety specialist that does all the root cause analysis and does the action mm-hmm. plans and that sort of thing. I'm looking forward to having the opportunity of being a little bit more connected to the nursing side, or if they say, oh, we need to educate the physicians on it's No, really, you need to educate the whole team. But by the way, what you're designing for the nurses may not work for the docs. So let me give you some tips. So maybe the docs will actually engage in what you want them to engage in. Because by the way, I've done this for eight years. I think there could be some better things there. Sharp is decentralized when it comes to nursing education, right? They have all their CNSs and they have a VP of nursing education and they have a residency program. And there's a whole bunch more components to the nursing side of it than there is to the physician side of it. And that's just part of the organizational culture that I think Mm -hmm. us in the department would like to change someday. So it was six of us at the system level taking care of all of the physicians, but then every entity would have its own group of people that would deal with the nursing side. And obviously there's many more nurses than there are physicians, but it's tough because there would I would hope for more viable opportunities to collaborate, which was easier with pharmacy because we were responsible for the pharmacy accreditation. So we often had a lot more activities that were duly accredited for CME and pharmacy education than we had anything that was duly accredited with nursing. Part of that motivation was in California, nurses can count CME as part of their BRN licensing. So in some ways, there wasn't a lot of motivation on our part to have to go through that additional paperwork when they can claim it already. But it did get us to a point where we started having conversations about joint accreditation and whether that would be a viable option. But the organization hasn't, they haven't decided whether or not they're going to go in that direction. And talking of conversations at an organizational level, can you talk a little bit about how diversity and equity emerged as goals for your organization? As an organization as a whole, there was actually a grassroots movement among some of the employees that started something called the Sharp Equality Alliance, which I have the privilege to be part of the steering committee. And over the last several years, particularly since the George Floyd murder, we've been able to really create some momentum and create some education. Um Things like Safe Speak, where it's kind of like Vegas, right? And people from the employee assistance program who have skills in counseling can show up. And if there are emergent issues either within the organization or maybe something happens in the news that's 
potentially causing some trauma or some disagreement in the workplace or just in the community in general, it's a safe space to be able to go and express your feelings and talk about that sort of thing. Um, and if EAP feels that there's somebody in there that may need some additional follow-up, they have the opportunity to do that. We also have something called Current Conversations, which is a non-accredited activity, but we usually do them like as mini series. Like one of the first sets of series we did was like called What's in a Name? And so we looked at African-American and Black communities. We looked at the Asian diaspora. We looked at Native Americans or first generation or indigenous, depending on which language you prefer, terminology that you prefer. And so it's really sparked a conversation across the organization about how this impacts who we are and how we relate to people and how we understand people and trying to create an openness and a learning and a, a safe space for people to ask questions of each other so that we can learn about each other. And we also have a... Um, CME accredited and a pharmacy accredited activity called the breakfast forum. We do it early in the morning on a Wednesday, about five or six times a year. That's basically a health equity series. So we try to, it's, and that's a broad thing, right? It could be everything from food insecurity to fat shaming, weight stigma. I have one coming up. We have one coming up next week, actually, that has to do with, um, Asians and Pacific Islanders and understanding the silent generation and how to communicate with them to make sure that they're getting their healthcare needs met and why maybe they engage in certain ways in the healthcare setting. There's been so many topics. We've talked about palliative care, spiritual care, the list goes on and on. But we have a presentation coming up related to the community health needs assessment that gets done every three years. That's a requirement for SHARP as a nonprofit organization. Those are some of the formal channels. Funnily enough, in California, there are two bits of legislation that kind of require that we do some things. So it makes it a little easier for maybe pushing those people over the edge that it's not just a personal passion that they want to do this. Or maybe it's a little bit tougher sell, like they might not, they need some pushing before they see the value. There is a legislation that was passed in 2005 that is related to cultural and linguistic competency. And making sure that, that gets addressed in all CME education. And then in 2019, actually something passed related to implicit bias, where it says all CME education has to contain something related to that. So, for example, if you're doing a cardiology presentation, you know, you need to talk about the differences across different populations. Or maybe you need to talk about the study that was done where they used actors and they had patients who looked different come in with the exact same condition, say the exact same thing to the physician and what they found is if you were a white person or presented as a white person, your care was much more aggressive for the same condition than if you were a black person in X percentage of the cases. And it didn't matter if the physician themselves identified as white or if they identified as a person of color. They did the same thing, which I find very interesting. So mm -hmm. there's a little bit of external motivation there for us, but I would say I think the organization generally does see the value in it. And I think the commendation criteria that came out several years back, I think really created an avenue for people who want to get engaged in this. I, I'm thinking of my colleagues from Cincinnati Children's. I'm thinking of people from the University of Wisconsin who've done a lot of presentations and, and done a lot of stuff on this outside of California. It's not just, just because we're being pushed. We're not the only ones that are kind of doing these things just to move these things to move these things forward. And so it's really been exciting to be a part of that. I would say that the accommodation criteria were a big push for us when we started really looking at public health topics and CME and wanting to start doing projects. And one of our big projects was a food insecurity, was a food insecurity project. And I will say 
that we got a lot of no's initially, even maybe from the director, I was really unsure. And two of us in the department were super passionate about it. And we're like, look, we're going to do this. And if we can't pull something off that looks reasonable, like in six months, then we'll knock it off. But until then, I know we have a million other things to do, but we're going to figure out how to make this project happen kind of thing. And so because we saw the value in it and we, aside of it being part of commendation, it was something that we knew we wanted to address. And then lo and behold, COVID happens and it shines a huge light on food insecurity. And we've already been dealing with it for three years. So where did the genesis of the food insecurity project come from? Was that part of your community needs assessment or were there other kind of metrics that were feeding into that? Aside from my personal passions around this topic, I was fortunate to have a teammate who has his master's in public health. So he has an eye for these things. And back in 2017, when we saw the new accommodation criteria come out and we were talking like, we were talking more about like doing some stuff downstream to make the or upstream, excuse me, to make some of the downstream care stuff better, or maybe making it have to happen less often because people are healthier and they're getting taken care of before they need to go see the doctor or end up in the ED or wherever. And what we realized is that because SHARP is a nonprofit organization, there's a law that says every three years they need to do a community health needs assessment of San Diego County to see where people stand, to see what their health challenges are, to see what other things are going on, to see what we could do to better serve the community. And we got connected with the manager of the community benefit program who actually was a big food insecurity advocate. And so we saw that 2016 survey and food insecurity rose to the top as the first social determinant of health that causes challenges in San Diego. So that plus the fact that she was an advocate and the fact that we wanted to do education, it was a confluence of things. And so we were able to, basically we put a basic presentation together and we sent Jillian, who was the manager of the community benefit program. She basically went on a road show. She must have given this presentation or did an exhibit like 10 different times, whether it was at different hospitals, different, you know, she showed up and did presentations for both medical groups. The bariatric program said, oh, can you do it? The mental health program said, hey, can you come over and do it? it just like one person did it and it started and people started talking about it. And then we got more requests. So over a year... But we had done a number of educational things related to this. And then we actually took the content and she voiced it over and we put it online so that if people wanted to access it, they could. And as a result of that, about a year later, we found out from one medical group that they were working on putting, there's two validated questions that you want to ask about food insecurity. I'm not going to say them because I'm probably going to screw them up. But if you search validated food insecurity questions, they will they'll pop up and I can send some resources if you want to link it to the podcast. Yes, that would be great. One medical group was trying to put them in the EMR so that they could ask them as part of the HMP. And they were also establishing a relationship with something here in San Diego called 211, which is basically like a social service aggregator. So you call 211 and you say, these are the challenges I'm having. Maybe I'm food insecure. Maybe I need transportation to my appointment. Maybe I'm having issues with getting housing, whatever it might be. I need mental health I'm I'm having a hard time finding mental health services and they can point you in different, they can point you in different directions so that if people uh, checked out on the survey, they could forward them to 211 and then 211 would be like, here's where the soup kitchens are, here's where the food banks are and try to get them to the resources they need. The other medical group took a different approach and they set up a text program 
And so what they did is after they saw patients, they would text them the two validated questions. And if people answered yes to those questions, they would say, we can provide you some resources to help address this. Would you like them? And then some people would say yes. And if you said no, they, they left you alone. But if you said yes, then they would connect you with those resources. And the first year, and we just got some data back from them. The pilot was very successful. So they're still doing that program now. And when we looked at data last year, they had really focused on improving access to food insecure patients. They were trying to get 5% of the population to respond and address mm -hmm. food insecurity. They ended up being able to connect with 12% of the population related to food insecurity. Wow. So it was more than double what they anticipated as their target. So it's been a highly it's been a highly successful program and we're super excited that we did education 5 years ago and it's still having an impact now because I think in CME sometimes you don't always you don't always see and the other side effect of that initial project and the success of that initial project was that we realized that this community health needs assessment was basically a big public health practice anal gap analysis, right? Like we could just look at it every three years and go, oh, this is what we're going to do for this next three years until the next one comes out. And frankly, we didn't have to do all the work to find the information to validate the practice gap, right? A whole other department was doing that. And it was easier to access than trying to get somebody from the county or get clarification on data that they had on a dashboard. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't use the county and other local resources, but it's always a little bit easier when you have an internal resource that you can call up Absolutely. or email or set up a meeting. And it's just, it makes ha things happen a little bit faster. When the next one came out in 2019, we got to see the impact of the food insecurity piece. And then it also highlighted that stigma and bias was the next big challenge, which was in perfect tandem with the Sharp Equality Alliance getting momentum and doing more stuff. And so it was like this amazing confluence of events where it really just supported a lot of education that we were doing through the SEA already. And so that when, you know, the C-suite and other people were asking, like, is, do we need this stuff? Or is it showing value? We could say, yeah, look at the community needs assessment. The community needs assessment says, yes, we need this stuff. And then the cool thing is, and this part got presented at SACME a couple of years ago. So if any of your viewers are interested, I do still have a copy of the poster. I can provide a copy of the poster. The 2022 results were just finalized like a month or so ago. I actually was just on the phone with the manager of community benefit earlier today. They got us on board in, in 2019 when they started doing the next survey or in 2020 when they started planning for this next survey where the results were going to come out. And we got to ask questions about whether or not some of the education that we had done, breakfast forum, safe speak, current conversations, grand rounds on like implicit bias and stigma in patients who have opioid use disorder and a number of other things that had happened over the couple years in between the surveys to see how that impacted patients and even how it impacted employees. And now the interesting thing, then now the data has come back. And the interesting thing of it all is that if you look at the demographic of the respondents, because it was an internet-based survey, I will say more than 70% because she didn't give me the number and I guess 70 and she said more than that, of the respondents were in a higher salary bracket, had an education, and were more than likely white. So the data we got back, although it does show some movement, and either people were really already satisfied with the care they were getting, or they did notice some change for the positive, more so than they had any concerns that things hadn't changed. 
it's made the group aware that they need to change their surveying technique so that they can get more of a broader population so we can get a better answer to that question. But the progress that we've made with community benefit from being reactive to the results to being able to make it a needs assessment on one end, but then an activity evaluation or a process evaluation on the other end, because we can get questions inserted into the survey to find out whether or not anything had an impact. I feel like it's super unique and it's just, it's been an amazing opportunity to kind of see how that grows. And even though I'm I'm no longer in the CME department, as far as advocating for that continued relationship, I really do hope that it continues because the new survey has come out and because of some new things we can do around geolocating and using zip codes and using people's exact Mm -hmm. home locations, right? Some of that race, ethnic data and SOGI data sexual orientation, gender data that we can get, we can really make it more specific to smaller places. Because if you haven't heard the saying already, like your zip code has more to do with your health outcomes than your DNA most of the time at a significant rate, right? And so if we can tie some of this together, then we can do more targeted stuff further down the road, which I think is a really exciting opportunity. And I'm hopeful that CME is going to stay engaged in all that. Yeah, it's a really interesting process that you describe of you start with the community needs assessment and then roll some education out to address that. And then people pick that up and actually do something active in the organization, in the community. Right, which I think is something that we all wish, hope, dream for, that it happens with all our CME activities, right? But we know that cycle is not perfect with a lot of the stuff that we do. A lot of it is, but sometimes it's really hard to create that cycle depending on what you're able to do. And this just feels like such a nice package. And it really mm-hmm. gets at that level at more is at the top, right? Like community health, which is where we all want to go. So I think that's why it's so exciting. You've said a couple of times, Heather, an interesting kind of confluence of events or stakeholders or interests. Does that, but what's behind that confluence? Is it something about the organizational culture, the workplace culture, the people that Sharp attracts to work for it? What's going on there that's driving that that confluence, do you think? I think part of it is what the organization attracts. I think that a lot of the people that work in the organization, really at the end of the day, it is about helping people. Even when you go back to my windy career story, like everything I've done has been about helping people somehow. And if they're not already aware of unconscious bias, the way that cultural humility works, all of that sort of stuff. I think there's really grown an openness to the organization that these things are important and that these are things that we can apply with each other as colleagues and peers and you are on the hierarchy and also things that are going to provide better care for our patients. And I think it ties nicely into something that we call the sharp experience, right? And everyone who comes in the, which is, it's really an amorphous feeling, right? If you, and if you ask 10 different people at Sharp to, to explain the sharp experience, you'll probably get 10 different answers, but there'll be a little bit of overlap, right? So they'll all say some of the same stuff, but then other people, they may describe other components of it a little bit differently. So, cause it's not just being friendly and nice. Like it's meeting people where they're at and seeing them for who they are and meeting their needs in the way they need them met. And that's different for everybody. And that's different for every family. And that's different. And every person in the organization maybe has a different approach to that. But at the end of the day, when you're discharged and you go home, we want you not only to feel like you've gotten 
top line medical care, but the people who were there genuinely cared about you and cared for you and made your made you feel welcome and made you feel seen as a human being and not just as like another patient in a bed who needs a procedure or whatever the case may be. Which is often the experience for so many of us who end up being patients at some point in life. What's next for you in terms of driving the issues forward that you are passionate about? I think, I think it's really interesting that another one of those confluences of events where I've transferred from CME to quality because the conversation has finally started about how health equity is a patient safety metric, right? Mm. Sometimes patient safety events happen because people make assumptions about other people based on race, based on sexual orientation, based on put a thing in there right? They're morbidly obese. They're homeless. They're like, pick whatever out of a hat, right? And so right now, when people are reporting concerns, our system doesn't allow people to say, I think this has to do with the social determinant of health, or I think this has to do with potentially unconscious bias or stigma or something. And there's starting to be conversations in the quality sphere about this moral contract, if we have an expectation that we need to treat you for what you need, for who you are, and not make assumptions and change the way that I'm going to care for you because maybe my personal feelings outside of work or something that you don't understand that or that seems strange, right? And so it leads to a different decision that maybe is not standard of care decision. And so it's great that coming into that genre And I'm really excited, given my background in this area already and my passion for this part of it, that I'm looking forward to potentially getting to be a part of wherever this journey takes us relative to a quality and safety um, team across the system in the different hospitals. Because I know that there are tools out there that do allow that type of reporting. And I know some of the things that they're doing in CME that could translate to, to... patient safety is around some of the case conferences where we want to start asking questions about race and social determinants of health to see if there are any patterns or trends or this person was morbidly obese and you did this with them and this person was within the normal limits by BMI or whatever metric you're using and you did something different. But the other person, you should have been able to do it to the other person too and you didn't. And so maybe there's not a Maybe there's not harm there in the end, but did you really offer that other person the best that you could offer them? And if not, is that a patient safety concern or a quality concern? When you're talking about these case conferences, you've already talked a little bit about how in some of your initiatives, you've really tried to create a safe space for people to talk about a whole range of different topics. Presumably that threads through into the way you design and deliver case conferences and peer review. How do the people who are engaging in that process feel about it? And do they feel able to talk about these things in an open way without feeling threatened? I think from the CME side, it's hard for me to say because that's something new that we were really starting to hash out as far as shining a light on that right before I left. And so... I don't know that I can speak to that piece of it, but I can say for the peer review piece, I think in the short time that I've been there, a goal of mine is to standardize things a little bit more across a number of committees that have peer review responsibilities. And 
trying to make it a learning process and not so punitive because I feel like I, it's really easy to run up against things that people are going to say, this is work. You shouldn't talk. That's not work conversation. It's political when you're not really trying to be political or any other number of things that can cause it to go down a road that nobody really wants to go down. And it can be seen as highly negative. I would say that I have hopes for figuring out how to do that and make it a positive environment. But, you know, I'm so new that I think get back to me in six months or a year and ask me what I'm up to. And if we've been able to make anything happen at this point, I'm just feeling my way around to try to figure out how I might be able to do that. And that'll be part two of our conversation. Heather Clemens, quality specialist. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. It was a pleasure. On this episode, we explored how establishing a relationship between quality and continuing medical education at a high organisational level can help with integration throughout the health system. Using Lean Six Sigma improved management performance at Sharp Grossmont and at the same time enabled collaboration with the CME department. And all of this worked together to enhance physician engagement and experience. There are many facets to quality as Heather described, clinical analytics at the system level, performance improvement, continuing medical education, plus a patient safety component, including specialists to determine root cause analysis, which we'll be exploring in season five of the podcast. That's it for season four of Right Medicine. I love to connect with listeners and hear from you what you're interested in learning more about on the podcast. If you like the podcast or a particular episode, please write a review on Apple Podcasts or leave a SpeakPipe voice message on the podcast page of my website. There's a link in the show notes to help you do either or both of these things. Enjoy the rest of this year and see you in January. Go gently. Go gently.